a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm very happy today to welcome uh, Jeff Einstein back to the program. We had him on about a week and a half ago. Jeff is from the Quality of Life Resistance Movement. And and Jeff, uh, first of all, good to have you back on board. How are you today? I'm well, thank you very much. It's very good to see your face again. Well, I'm I'm very gratified. I am seeing your work appearing very regularly now on lourockwell.com, which is one of my daily places that I go to when I want to get a sense of what's going on and and thoughtful commentary. That's where I go. So you've uh, you've cracked the code and it sounds like you're well, being featured pretty regularly. I sent a nice thank you note to Lou and told him the check was in the mail. <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of different voices on, on Lou Rockwell's website, and I actually recommend it as a resource for wrong thinkers and people who just want to get a, another informed take on what's happening. It, it makes me very happy, though, to see your voice on there. For people who are meeting you for the first time, take a couple minutes and just kind of give us a little bit of background about who you are and, and what you do. Um, well, you know, I, I grew up in the 1950s and 60s. My parents were uh, were products of uh, uh, were both uh, FDR JFK liberals products of the University University of Chicago where they met, and I was raised in a very literary household. Uh, my dad was a baseball writer, so I got to grow up watching Willie Mays in his heyday, which was one of the most wonderful ways that anyone could spend their time back then or today for that matter. Um, and uh, I was, you know, basically the product of a, of a liberal household where that was uh, truly secularized. Uh, I guess you'd expect nothing less of of a couple of uh, University of Chicago graduates. It's like the old Woody Allen line. My mom was an atheist. My father was an agnostic. And between the two of them, they didn't know what religion not to bring me up in. Uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Mill Valley, California, which even back then was arguably the most liberal place on the planet, uh, certainly is today. And, uh, you know, I wasn't uh, much for school. Once I got into high school, I never really, or middle school for that matter, I stopped going to class almost entirely. I described my my uh, four-year high school career as the best eight days of my life. Um <laughs> So I did show up one uh, extra day in my senior year and, uh, and was elected student body president and used that as an excuse basically to uh, to take the entire student body out on a long and protracted uh, strike against, this is 1970, against the uh, war in Vietnam and the bombing of Cambodia and the, the killing of students and, at Kent State at the time. Uh, and really that was my exit strategy from high school. I just wanted to make it too expensive for them. To, uh, to hold on to me an extra year. Uh, when I left uh, high school, I went to, uh, I flew out to uh, Israel for four years. Most people with any brains took a right turn and headed up to Canada instead. I wound up on the, uh, on the intersection of the Israeli, Syrian, and Jordanian borders, uh, which in retrospect was probably not the best way to, to avoid war, because um, I was avoiding the draft uh, for, the, uh, for the war in Vietnam. 
And then four years later, they tried to draft me after this, about six months after the uh, Yom Kippur War in October of 1973. They tried to draft me into the Israeli army, and I, I did the adult thing, of course. I hopped the next plane to Frankfurt. So I've been chased out of two different <laughs> countries by two different armies. You'd think someone would get the point. I just don't look good in khaki. Uh, and after that, I bummed around for a little while back in California, started writing um, and published some pieces here and there and, and uh, wrote my first novel, which, which was never published. Um, and, uh, and chased a woman to New York City in 1978, I guess it was. And I remained in 1978, basically, for the next 40 years. While I was there, I became the, uh, quite by accident, the, uh, the Mr. Digital of, the early Mr. Digital of New York City. I wrote the first major how-to book series ever published on personal computers called Einstein's Computer Guides. And that was really just a byproduct of my last name uh, on a lark. Um, uh, you know, a computer book by a guy named Einstein was sort of guaranteed to sell well for a while. Oh, it then, sounds legit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I didn't know anything about uh, about computers when I signed the book contract. I'd never touched a, a personal computer uh, when I signed the book contract. I just I just had a great last name, and I was a good writer by then. Uh, so basically, I satisfied what I what I thought were the two basic ills of all technical literature at the time, which is. Uh, technical overkill, which happens when authors would rather showcase than share what they know. And since I'd never touched a personal computer, I didn't know anything. I didn't worry about that. Uh, and the other thing was bad writing, which is bad writing no matter how much you know. And since I'd been a, a writer for the previous 15 years, and uh, I, I felt eminently uh, qualified to write about these things I never touched. And this was in 1984, the book series was published. And later that same year, I co-founded the first digital advertising agency in the country uh, called Einstein and Sandum. Um, that was sold to, uh, to a, a major media conglomerate in the mid-1990s, but I'd already sold my interest and, and bugged out of there uh, some years earlier. Um, so I, you know, I've been basically, I'm, I'm the old timer, the original, one of the original old timers in new media. I think in, in 2003, the New York Times wrote an article, posted an article that uh, the author called me the Mick Jagger of digital media. And I thought, at first I thought it was a compliment and then I thought about it and I realized <laughs> that I was the only ugly, you know, the, the ugly white guy uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a, an industry of really good looking young people. Um, so, you know, and I started writing about uh, I started turning state's witness and writing about the digital downsides, writing against the effects of big data, of what was coming down the pike and big data and behavioral targeting. I had a week, a weekly column in a big uh, all things media portal uh, for professional media people in around 2004 to 2006. And basically because I started writing about the, my meta theme, which became our meta addiction, default meta addiction to all things media and all things digital, I sort of wrote my way out of the uh, out of the digital industry, um, and have remained there ever since. I've been kind of like the digital apostate ever since, and just more recently, over the past five or six years, started writing and producing material uh, that reflected my 
more current thinking. Uh, and, so that's and, where I am now. I have a Substack called uh, called the uh, uh, Quality of Life Resistance Movement about what happens when you take the quality of life that we've seen in decline uh, in the 21st century in all ways, in all measures, uh, and what happens when we start pushing back as political resistance and you speak in the quality of life you speak a language that uh, that really strikes the right chord with me and that is you know it's it's not uh, well let's just vote harder and let's get the right people in there to do this for us um i mean as i look at your your substack the quality of life resistance movement substack I see a lot of things that uh, that start with, you know what, here's where I can step up. These are things that I can do. In fact, you give some very specific calls to action that anybody can do if they want to lessen that uh, that grip of digital addiction, which I would gather a lot of people aren't even aware, you know, how large of a segment of our, our society is addicted to digital media. Well, I would argue that just about all of us are addicted at this point to digital media. Um, the question is whether or not we can uh, we can do the things we want to do and improve the quality of lives in spite of the addiction. And my argument basically is that we can't. Um, and it's not a function of getting rid of the addiction. It's a function like all, like recovery from all. Uh, statistically, the only viable way, uh, the only viable method of recovery. Uh, to addiction, regardless of the narcotic, is moderation. Abstention doesn't work very well. It statistically, you know, works obviously works for some people. And I, you know, I always counsel people: do whatever you think works for you. Um, but statistically, uh, abstention is not a very effective form of recovery or long-term recovery because, in essence, it's another form of excess behavior. Uh, you're just going from one extreme to another extreme. And for that reason, it doesn't work very well. The If you stop and think about it, we're pretty much hardwired for addiction. Our, our brains are chemically wired to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. That's why the mechanism of media addiction is the exact same mechanism as heroin addiction, which is the exact same mechanism, of chemical mechanism of Compulsive gambling or, hair, or or crack, cocaine, all all narcotic behaviors and physical narcotics generate the same basic chemical reactions in our brains. Okay, hold that thought for just a second. We are talking with Jeff Jeff Einstein. We'll be back right after this. this is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show, and we are back. My guest is my guest is uh, Jeff Einstein. If you haven't checked out his uh, his Substack, you'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I really strongly recommend. This is one you should subscribe to, if, if for no other reason. Jeff is going to give you a very refreshing point of view that I just I don't see very many other places, and and. Jeff, I just I just got uh, your latest essay in my inbox this morning um, about things that matter, and, and really, you know, if you if you're going to fight the resistance, you're going to push back against you know the the systems that are trying to rule us. Um, I guess the first thing you got to do is is suss out for yourself. Okay, what are the things that really matter? Talk to me a little bit about this this latest column, and and what are you addressing in terms of uh, 
where we put our attention. Well, the quality of life resistance movement is predicated on the rise of a specific 21st century form of totalitarianism. I call it Huxwell, and it comes in the confluence of two primary events. One is the rise, is the state-sponsored default addiction, and the other is the rise of institutional tyranny and power. And these two things work together, basically, to suppress the quality of life across the board, across all metrics. The things that matter in our lives are the same things that mattered 100 years ago and the same things that mattered 100 years before that. The things that matter are faith, family, and community. Those coincidentally happen to be the same three things that work best in dealing with addiction and the things that work best in dealing with the with the resistance to centralized uh, institutional tyranny. Their faith, family, and community are best served when we take the time, first of all, to turn away from the diversionary uh, carnival sideshow uh, that's being fed to us 24-7 every day of the week, every week of the year, uh, by our addiction to all things media and all things digital, so we can focus instead on the things that matter, faith, family, and community. The next thing that, that happens, once we're, once we're able to sort of step away from that, we find that we're able also to moderate our own lifestyles in the presence of this massive meta-addiction, this meta massive cradle-to-grave meta-addictive state of psychotropics, pharmaceutical psychotropics, and digital, and digital narcotics. Um, and we do that by basically reintroducing meaningful rituals into our lives. And the reintroduction of meaningful rituals, for instance, the family dinner table and the Sabbath day of rest, carry with them those elements that help protect us against uh, addiction. And because addiction is really the absence of moderating rituals and the presence of extreme rituals that come with the addiction. That's what happens. When we become addicted, we replace our meaning, the meaningful rituals in our lives over time with the mindless rituals of our obsessions and our addictions. So the way out of that is to moderate our behavior by the gradual reintroduction of meaningful ritual in our lives. That leads us to the a return to local autonomy where we reinvest in the institutions of our local communities and lives, like the dinner table the fa like, and the Sabbath day of rest, where we get to refocus our energy efforts and resources on faith, family, and community. That's the protective, that's the protective shroud that keeps us away from addiction or helps us moderate our own addictions and improve the quality of our life, while it also helps blunt the, the force of centralized power being handed down from above. You point Those out. Are the three things. You the point things out. That in, are the same things. Yeah, in, in your essay, you point out something that to me was actually, I, I thought, very encouraging, and that is there is nothing that threatens centralized power and institutional tyranny of, the, of digital scale like 
that return to local autonomy. And one of the examples you gave is absolutely nothing upsets the, the people of a controlling nature more than parents who claim control of their own children. Boy, are we seeing that a lot today. Yes, the, uh, the net effect of, uh, of centralized power is almost always, when it becomes, once it becomes totalitarian, once there's no real recourse to it other than this kind of grassroots movement, which we see now in parents' groups, who are parents who are showing up to the school at the school board, local school board for the first time uh, to reclaim control of their children. But if you stop and think about it, really what totalitarians of all stripes, conservative and progressive alike, have done since totalitarianism became a thing in the 20th century is the effort to take over our homes and our children. Those are the two target objectives of all totalitarians. And that's what we see now. We see that with the taking over of housing stock by gigantic investment firms and hedge funds uh, and converting it into, into rental uh, housing so that we no longer have a pathway to the middle class financially. We see that also with centralized efforts on behalf of the Department of Education and basically every government agency right now to take control over our family lives and our children in particular. So our children are at risk. And as soon as we we realize that they're more important to us than our addictions and our vanity, then we'll be able to deal with that in some capacity. Now, a person who chooses to follow this path or to undertake any of the three calls to action that you give, can they expect to uh, pushback from the people around them, their neighbors, their co-workers, their family members. It seems like society's kind of programmed to punish anybody who starts to stray, you know, from the herd. I think the simple answer is yes. To what degree depends obviously on, on local exigencies and, and relationships. Um, but I think the general answer is yes. Anytime you stand up to power, you risk you put yourself at risk, you put your, your family to a certain extent at risk and the people you love and the institutions you treasure also at risk. So there's a, there's a considerable amount of risk involved with it, even if it's just a function of turning off the, uh, the TV or doing something other than, with your time other than uh, sticking your face in the screen. There are, there are risks, because right now, they know exactly where you are. The powers that be know exactly where you are, exactly what you're doing, exactly who you're talking to, exactly what you're saying at all hours of the day. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, you're always at risk now. So, um, I guess that what people have to come to, and this is going to be on an individual basis, is: is it worth it to me? Am I willing to step aside or step out of polite society because I feel like this is more important than? the ease and comfort of just going with the flow like everybody else, you know, who's, who's caught up in that, that digital snare. Well, the ease and the comfort is designed to keep you from stand, stepping up and standing out and resisting. The addiction is there for a reason. The addiction is there to basically keep you compliant. That's the compliance mechanism. The enforcement mechanism is more, is more Orwellian. So the risk is the enforcement mechanism that you will incur the enforcement mechanism, but the but what you have to do first is bust through the compliance mechanism of the default state-sponsored addiction. 
Yep. This and this is where your term Huxwell is so absolutely on target for, for the dystopian place we find ourselves. It's not entirely Orwellian. It's not entirely uh, what uh, Huxley, your, or Aldous uh, Huxley, you know, warned us about. It's, it's a combination of both, and unfortunately, both of them kind of have us where they want us, at least at, at the moment. Yeah, they do. Right now we're seeing the, uh, the I'm writing a new article now about what happens when the, uh, when the storytellers, when the great artists, are replaced by agitprop, by basically by mediocre artists who are now producing mediocre propaganda. Okay. And on, on that note, we've got we're up against the clock, but uh, Jeffrey Einstein, I really appreciate your voice. I encourage people subscribe to your Substack, and you and I will talk again soon. I look forward to it, Brian. Thanks, folks. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, if you're really serious about wrong think, I would invite you, please, check out my website. It's called thebrianhydeshow.com. Pretty straightforward. There you will find resources for wrong thinkers. And that's just a little collection of, uh, I don't know, websites and other resources that I have cobbled together. It's, it's a growing list, actually of uh, different sources of information or at least different news aggregators and commentary aggregators and sometimes just commenters that I think have a pretty good slant on what's going on. I I don't present this in the idea that, hey, this is the only information you'll, you'll ever need. You should probably consider as much information as you can, but... I like to share the stuff that has uh, has kind of stood the test of time and especially has shown itself to be credible and timely and and based in principle more so than, than partisanship. I think I've mentioned this before. The, the thing I look for in an information source or in, in an article or a news story or anything like that is light. Does this bring light in the, in the way of understanding to uh, how I see the world? Or does it just bring, you know... Fury and anger and fear and angst. Because I can do without those other things. But I'm, I'm seeking light. And I think uh, you must be as well. well. You wouldn't be listening to this show otherwise. So, I want to share an article with you from Donald J. Boudreau. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. And I have to ask this question. Do you ever get the impression that the systems and the individuals that like to rule us or that want to rule us They seem to have this attitude about them that, well, if it weren't for me, you would devolve to a Lord of the Flies kind of existence if you didn't have my sophisticated tutelage or my direction at every turn. I'm seeing this right now in my home state of Idaho where um, they're they're pushing for a open primary, uh, what's it called, ranked choice voting scheme. And because a number of... Republican, former Republican leaders, these are, these are establishment types that have, most of them been out of power for a while. They're, they're coming on board saying, well, now it's time that we do this. You know, Idaho deserves better. And it's the idea that, uh, that somehow we're the adults in the room and we'll tell you what you need to do. Because without us, you know what you would devolve into? A bunch of extremists. And, and it's just, it's so tiresome. I want you to hear Donald Boudreaux's take on this. He says, I'm tired of being presumed to be an uncivilized brute. He says, having served for nearly 40 years on collegiate faculties at Clemson University and mostly at George Mason University, 
I long ago accepted the reality that almost all of my colleagues across the campus detest and will continue to, to detest the classical liberalism that I warmly embrace. Now, he says, my embrace of liberalism is warm in no small part because I grasp what most of my colleagues don't. Namely, the peaceful, beautiful logic, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the peaceful, I'm ahead of myself, the basic, beautiful logic of markets in which adults trusted to pursue their own peaceful goals in their own mature ways generate immense prosperity for all. Why, he says, I often wonder, can't English professor Smith or history professor Jones learn the important material that freshmen in my Econ 101 course master within a month? Donald Boudreau says, I still wonder about faculty members Smith and Jones, but I also respect them as individuals and as professionals. Almost never do I question their decency as human beings or their dedication to their students. He says, my respect for the typical university administrator, however, is rapidly disappearing. For some time now, I couldn't quite identify the core reason for my growing unhappiness with these administrators, but he says a recent event at George Mason finally brought clarity. I loathe the now prevalent assumption that my colleagues and I are all uncivilized brutes. Now, the event in question is the forced resignation on allegations of sexual harassment of a member of the faculty of George Mason's Scalia School of Law. If the allegations against this professor are true, then his departure is appropriate, as perhaps are additional punitive measures. Predictably, however, the university administration isn't stopping its suitably disciplining a misbehaving faculty member. Among other overreactions, it just announced that every member of the faculty and staff must undergo additional sexual harassment training. To which Donald J. Boudreaux says, how annoying, how asinine. Everyone who graduates from high school knows that it's wrong for a professor to exchange higher grades or privileged treatment for sexual favors. Everyone also knows not to crack raunchy jokes among students and colleagues not to comment on a student or colleague's looks, and not to expose oneself in public. The amount of what all decent people know along these lines is vast. Instilling such knowledge requires no formal training. It's gotten by living in a civilized society. The relatively few individuals who violate these well-known rules of proper conduct don't do so because they're unaware of the rules. They do so because they're unethical. And such individuals won't be made ethical by being lectured at by underlings of the deputy assistant provost for diversity, equity, and inclusion. He says, nevertheless, all of my campus colleagues and I must now, on the insulting assumption that we have the moral immaturity of pimply teenage boys, be subjected more intensively to university mandarins teaching us all what we already know and what, if we did not know, cannot be taught in 90-minute formal sessions namely how to conduct ourselves as civilized and mature adults. Now, he says such childish treatment isn't confined to sexual harassment training. University faculty must also attend comically pointless sessions aimed at curing us of what is presumed to be our latent racism and homophobia. The prevailing assumption, it seems, is that but for these training sessions, campuses would be overrun with blackface-wearing homophobes who routinely grade or trade grades for sex. <laughs> He's right, though. Unfortunately, he says this mania for presuming that faculty and staff are boorish swine who can nevertheless be sufficiently enlightened by a few hours under the tutelage of university bureaucrats isn't limited to George Mason. And he says, well, I can find no reliable count of the number of colleges and universities that today require such training. A quick Google search reveals this number to be distressingly large. And he says, I'm sure that it's growing. 
Colleges are supposed to be places where young men and women come of age and learn from adults who are entrusted to instruct and tutor them. Yet college administrators increasingly treat we adults who are given this trust as if we are inherently unworthy of it. If college faculty members really are morally depraved as woke administrators suppose us to be, the proper response isn't more training sessions, but tearing the existing academy to the ground and starting anew from scratch. I love that he's pushing back on this. And he, he makes a fine point. Um, I, I was thinking back just a few years ago. I cannot remember which hurricane it was. Oh, well, actually, I do remember. Um, oh, shoot. Now it just escaped my mind. The big one in 2005. Yep. It's gone. Anyway, the one that hit New Orleans. So help came from all over. This was a massive Category 5 hurricane. It uh, didn't just devastate New Orleans. It hit the, the whole Gulf Coast and, and just wreaked all kinds of havoc. Katrina, thank you. That's I appreciate the prompt from my subconscious. So people poured in from all over the place to help, right? This was a huge recovery effort and, and rescue effort and so forth. In fact, in the early days, as they were bringing in rescuers, like when people were still trapped, this was the crazy thing about it. In order to come in and help, you first had to uh, pass a mandatory sexual harassment. No, I'm sorry. It was a sensitivity training. Same kind of thing. A sensitivity training course before you could be permitted to go and help these people who were in need. Now, look, I'm not saying that, uh, hey, you know, <laughs> there's no place for sensitivity training. There is. But when lives are on the line or when there's, there are people actually in need, why do we waste time with these gestures of, well, let's make sure that whatever rescuers show up, they're going to have the proper inclusivity, inclusivity rather, and, and diversity in their thinking. and Baloney. This is the problem, okay? It's a top-down approach. And then the problem with the top-down approach is they assume that if this is what is needed, you know, in New York City, it's going to work just fine in, you know, Biloxi, Mississippi. Now, you take the Cajun Navy as a counterpoint here. When hurricanes come and people need help, the Cajun Navy is right there, ready to help. And you know what? This is the crazy thing about it. You see the pictures. They're not sitting there, uh, you know, balking because, well, you know, I don't, I'm here to help people, but I'm not here to carry some trans individual out of the, out of harm's way. No, they don't care about race. They don't care about color. They don't care about religion. They are there to help because they understand what is needed right there. This is why we solve problems at the lowest possible level. And when you can't do that, when you're, you know, especially addicted to bureaucracy, what do you do? You create problems that you can then solve. Well, the problem here is there doesn't seem to be enough sensitivity. This is uh, it's classic Marxist crowd manipulation techniques. And the, the uh, facilitators who come in to teach these sensitivity training sessions and sexual harassment training and so forth, they're not there to solve problems. They are there to promote correct attitudes. But more importantly, they're there to determine who are the ones who will push back. Who are the problem children who will not go along with this training or who will resist or push back against it? And their job, believe it or not, is to figure out who those individuals are, correctly identify them early in the process, and then use the pressure of their colleagues or their friends to bring them into line. Again, this is classic Marxist crowd manipulation techniques. I believe Beverly Eaker actually wrote a book on this. Well worth your time to, uh, to read it and understand so you'll recognize when it's being used on you. In the meantime, 
Just know that I presume you're a decent human being until you show me otherwise. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, ClimbingUpward.com, and QuiltAndSew.com. You can check them out in detail at my personal website, which is TheBrianHydeShow.com. So can I give you some good news? I think, we, I think we're about due for some good news. Pick this one up off IntellectualTakeout.org. Do you remember the Canadian pastor back during lockdowns? When it was really being strictly enforced, like literally, they would send police to your church. Hey, you guys aren't supposed to be meeting. And the police would come in and try to disrupt worship services. Arthur Pulowski was one of those pastors. And I will never forget the video clip of him um, in, a, in a very literal sense, casting out these police officers who came to disrupt his worship service. And I mean casting them out in the same way that uh, the disciples of old cast out demons, commanding them to leave, you know, in the Lord's name. It was, it was very powerful. And you could see in the eyes of these, these officers, they, they knew they were in the wrong. Morally, they were convicted. Their consciences were like, what do we do? Well, um, I'll tell you what they did. At the behest of the Canadian government, they went and arrested this Arthur Pulowski dragged him off to jail. Um, I believe he supported the uh, the trucker uh, convoy as well. And and this this is not just an isolated incident. So I was just reading where two pastors from Alberta who held church services in defiance of provincial public health orders had their names cleared after all the charges against them were dropped. Last month, you know, these were James Coates of Grace Life Church in Edmonton and Timothy Stevens of Fairview Baptist Church in Calgary. They spent a combined 53 days in jail in early 2021 for refusing to close the doors of their respective churches. Now, late in July of this year in Ingram versus Alberta, the Alberta Court of King's Bench ruled that the temporary powers used to prosecute those pastors were invalid. I know, don't you wish that somebody would have come to their senses a little bit earlier? As reported by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which provided legal aid to both passengers, or both pastors, rather, quote, on July 31, 2023, the Alberta Court of Kings bench released a consequential decision in Ingram v. Alberta. The public health orders that Pastor Coates and Grace Life Church had violated were found to be beyond the legal authority of the Public Health Act and were therefore invalid. The act requires that all decisions with respect to public health orders must be made by the chief medical officer of health and not the Alberta cabinet. In her concluding remarks, Justice Barbara Romaine stated, while the involvement of elected officials in these important decisions may be desirable and even necessary, this involvement should have been structured in such a way as to mitigate the risk of political priorities interfering with the informed and well-qualified judgment of the chief medical officer of health as provided in the Public Health Act, without ignoring the underlying public interest. End quote. Now, JCCF has also further confirmed that, as a consequence of Ingram v. Alberta, all charges against Pastor Coates and Grace Life Church have been dismissed by the Crown, and the Crown will not be seeking a further jail sentence for Pastor Coates. 
The Crown likewise withdrew all charges against Fairview Baptist Church. Indeed, according to JCCF, it is expected that the Alberta Crown will withdraw all COVID-related tickets and may reimburse all fines for violations of COVID-related public health orders paid by Albertans. So the actions of these pastors provide an instructive lesson, not just for heavy-handed secular authorities, but also for Christians and Christian leaders who were critical of those who forged a more resolute path through the COVID-era restrictions. COVID-compliant churches commonly appeal to Romans 13.1, which says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. However, an unquestioning application of this verse failed to take into account that public health orders were frequently issued hastily and on shaky legal grounds. And the unfortunate reality of the situation is that the government has not admitted its actions toward Pastor Coates and Stevens and many other Christians, for that matter, were morally wrong. The court noted the shaky legal ground of who was giving these orders and how these orders were given, but they missed the underlying violation of Christians' right to worship together. Indeed, the, past for, the price rather for doing so was high for Pastor James Coates and Pastor Timothy Stevens. Coates was arrested by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police February, 20, February 15th of 2021 for ignoring capacity limits for indoor gatherings as well as mask and social distancing guidelines. For Coates' part, he believed he was simply exercising his right to freedom of religion, conscience, association, and peaceful assembly under Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedom. On refusing to sign an undertaking to obey Alberta's public health orders, Coates was jailed in the Edmonton Remand Centre for 35 days. In April of the same year, authorities in Alberta temporarily closed Grace Life Church for failing to comply with public health measures. The church's facilities were even physically fenced off by the government to prevent access. Now, in events that almost paralleled Coates' experience, Pastor Timothy Stevens was arrested at his church on May 13, 2021, by Calgary police, and he spent 18 days in jail. So these two men, who have no connection to one another before the pandemic, each have told their story in the recently released documentary, The Essential Church. As expressed in the film, the two pastors' central conviction was that for the state to designate church services as non-essential was for the state to make a theological claim. And for Coates and Stevens, it was a theological claim that evidently contradicted Scripture. Hebrews 10.25, for example, admonishes believers against giving up meeting together. Their highest fealty was to God, not the state, they reasoned, which, must, which uh, meant, rather, keeping their church doors open, come what may. And though, uh, you know, Coates and Stevens viewed these uh, closures as an issue of conscience, consistent with disputes throughout church history, in which believers paid even the ultimate price for their religious convictions. So, though they were in the minority, Coates and Stevens were joined by other Christian leaders who faced legal challenges for defying human rights incursions during COVID. These included John MacArthur of Grace Community Church in California, Rob McCoy of Godspeak Calvary Chapel in California, Rodney Howard Brown of the River at Tampa Bay Church in Florida, Tony Spell of Life Tabernacle Church in Louisiana, and fellow Canadian Arthur Palowski of Calgary and others. So Leighton Gray, Leighton Gray rather, lead counsel for Pastor Coates, summarized his client's legal victory thus. Quote, Pastor James Coates and Grace Life Church endured a great deal of vilification and abuse during the COVID-19 pandemic. This was meted out by the media, the Kenny government, Alberta Health Services, the RCMP, many Albertans, and even the Alberta courts. One judge went so far as to accuse Pastor Coates of endangering the lives of many Albertans without there being any evidence before the court to substantiate that accusation. 
That same judge even threatened to give Coates even more jail time than the 35 days he'd already served. Another judge told Pastor Coates that despite having been jailed, his charter right to liberty had somehow not been violated. In the end, all of the COVID lockdown restrictions were declared illegal. So this is a day of justice for Pastor Coates and indeed for every Albertan who continues to support the supremacy of God and the rule of law. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, which you can check this out for yourself. I hope you'll take the time to do it. It's, uh, I have great respect for those pastors and church leaders who defied these public health orders, mainly because these public health orders, whether they were well-intended or whether they were just a naked power grab, they were wrong. They were overreach on the part of the authorities who issued them. And it's sad when you think about how much division came about as a result of these kinds of orders. You know, I was, I was reading a statistic yesterday. A friend actually had sent this to me. And it was talking about how in, in Nazi Germany, actually, let me read this. I know, what? He's going to talk about Nazi Germany? Oh, man, you can't do that. But this, this really struck me. Because it, it pointed out, yeah, this is from Robert Gelately, author of Backing Hitler, who said there were relatively few secret police and most were just processing the information coming in. I had found a shocking fact. It wasn't the secret police who were doing this wide-scale surveillance and hiding on every street corner. It was the ordinary German people who were informing on their neighbors. And I realize the COVID lockdowns were a far cry from what Nazi Germany were doing. But the pattern, do you not see the commonality of the pattern? We didn't have health police going out and visiting every church or, you know, standing guard at every park. But you had Karens out there, which were kind of the same thing, the informers. Hello, police. I see some people here who aren't scared and I want you to come and do something about them. That's not a good thing. The craziest thing to me, though, is that uh, much of our corporate press, many of the politicians and people in authority who actually pushed these lockdown orders, who pushed essential versus non-essential and mandates and so forth, they're still singing the same tune. The press still rails against people. Well, we can't believe there were people who, who defied these public health orders when they were just there to help. I think at this point it's pretty safe to say they know damn well it wasn't just about health. It was about control. And the people who defied it were defying the control. And that's why, I guess, uh, they're still complaining about it. We cannot let them impose such things again. This is The Brian Hyde Show.